One of the great modern heroes of Christian faith was an English woman named Hannah More. She was born in 1745 and died in 1833. She was one of the great female poets and writers of her day. But instead of using her literary talents to pursue a life of fame and pleasure in the London art scene, she used it to advocate for social reforms. She wrote tracts to help teach literacy to the poor. She worked to institute hundreds of free schools for working class children who had no access to education. And she did more to help abolish the British slave trade than almost any other person. All in all, Hannah More was a woman who excelled in good works, but she was also a woman of faith. She was a dedicated and outspoken Christian, and she dedicated herself as much to the task of evangelizing English society as reforming it. So for that reason, it should come as no surprise that she gave a lot of thought to the relationship between faith and good works. In fact, she actually wrote a poem about it. In the poem, there's a married couple named Dan and Jane, and they've got a great relationship and rarely argue, except, except for when it comes to this subject of faith and good works. As Hannah puts it in the poem, one point, however, they disputed, and each by turns his mate confuted, Twas faith in works this naughty question they found not easy of digestion. While Dan for faith alone contended, Jane equally good works defended. Interestingly, as they argue, both Dan and Jane end up trying to appeal to the same biblical character to make their case. Dan calls him a patriarch sage of ancient days, a man of faith whom all must praise. Jane, for her part, appeals to the same person, but she describes him as the holiest man since the world began and says that what made him great wasn't so much his believing as his prompt obeying of God's command. Given the subject of our study, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise that the man they're both referring to is none other than Abraham. Both of them admire him, but for different reasons. Dan, because of Abraham's great faith, and Jane, because of his great act of obedience. And in that regard, Dan and Jane aren't so different from two authors of the New Testament, namely Paul and James. In chapter four of his letter to the Romans, the apostle Paul appeals to Abraham as the premier biblical example of a man who was made right with God, not on the basis of any good works he did, but rather on the basis of his faith, his willingness to trust God's promise. It's ironic then that in his own New Testament later, letter, the apostle James appeals to Abraham to make what seems to be an entirely different point. For James, Abraham, is not simply a model of faith as opposed to works. For James, Abraham is the supreme example of the unbreakable connection between faith and good works or faith and obedience. You see, James says, you see that faith was active along with Abraham's works. 
and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So you see, Dan and Jane, they weren't original. Both Paul and Dan lift up Abraham as the preeminent example of a man of faith. And both James and Jane use Abraham to try to prove the point that good works are of vital importance. What's more, not only do James and Jane both appeal to Abraham, they actually both appeal to the very same event in his life to prove their point. Both of them, when they want to talk about the importance of his obedience, his works, both point to the story that's told in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham obeys God by taking his son Isaac up onto a mountain to kill him and offer him as a sacrifice. And in this session, we're going to do exactly the same. We're going to look at the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 and ask what it can teach us about the relationship between faith and good works, or rather, I should say, between obedience and faith. So first, let, let's talk about Abraham's obedience. In Genesis 21, the miraculous happens. After decades of waiting, after Abraham and Sarah have both grown old and have long passed the age when women are able to have children, at long last, Sarah gives birth to a son, and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac is the, the child of laughter, and not, not just because Abraham and Sarah had both laughed when the angel predicted his birth, but because his arrival into the world was such an unexpected and such a shocking moment of joy that they could do nothing other than laugh. To quote Frederick Beekner, the reason that Abraham and Sarah laughed was that it suddenly dawned on them that the wildest dreams that they'd ever had hadn't been half wild enough. But all of that wild, hilarious joy, it all seems to come crashing down with the first two verses of the next chapter. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. It's one of the most horrifying moments in the entire Bible. Finally, after the many years of waiting, God has made good on his promise and he's given Abraham and Sarah a son. And now... Now he wants Abraham to take that son and kill him and offer him as a burnt offering? In fact, it's even worse when you pay attention to the way the sentence runs, the words that are used. God doesn't just ask Abraham to offer up his son. He asks him to offer up his only son, the son whom he loves. The famous medieval Jewish rabbi, Rashi, he, he captures the weight of this request and his midrashic kind of restatement of it. Your son, Abraham said to him, I have two sons. God said to him, your only son. He said to him, 
This one is an only one to his mother, and this one is an only one to his mother. He said to him, Whom you love? He said, I love both of them. He said to him, Isaac. What God is asking of Abraham is almost incomprehensible. To sacrifice not just a son, not just the son he loves, but the son of promise, the son of hilarious joy, Isaac. And yet, Abraham obeys. He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He takes along two servants and his son Isaac, and they head off to the mountain in Moriah. In verse 4, we're told that the journey to the mountain took three days. Three days when Abraham walked with his son, his only son, the son whom he loved. Three days when the terrible deed that awaited him weighed upon his mind. Three days during which he could have reconsidered. He could have tried to negotiate with God, could have decided that he had simply misheard, that this couldn't possibly be what was being asked of him. But he didn't. For three long days, he marched on. And when he finally arrived, he took Isaac up the mountain, bound him, set him on an altar, and pulled out the knife to make the sacrifice. It's no wonder that both Jane and James use this story to illustrate the importance of obedience in the Christian life. Is there anything more difficult that could possibly be asked of Abraham than this? And yet he obeyed. But this isn't just a story of obedience. It's also a story of faith. What is faith? Sometimes we think of it as a, as a great religious virtue or, or as a belief in things that can't be seen or proven. And there's some truth to that, but the most basic way to think about faith is to recognize that faith is trust. And to have faith in a person means to trust what they say and who they are. To trust them enough that you're willing to do as they ask even if you don't fully understand why. And that's what we see in this story. Abraham trusted God. He'd spent decades at this point coming to know God and learning more about him. And he'd come to trust him. He trusted that God was good and, and truthful. And he trusted that God would remain true to his word. And so he did what God asked, even when he couldn't understand it, even when it seemed to make no sense, he obeyed. And that's very important to keep in mind if you're going to understand the story rightly, because if you don't, you might be tempted to think that what Abraham did was just some heroic and tragic act of sacrificial or worse, slavish obedience. Like the story in Greek mythology of King Agamemnon, who is forced to sacrifice his own daughter to the goddess Artemis in order to ensure safe passage for his army on their way to Troy. Agamemnon commits an act of ultimate sacrifice in order to appease a god. And in doing so, he becomes something of a tragic hero. But while his deed was sacrificial, and an act of obedience, it was not an act of faith. And we shouldn't interpret Abraham's actions as if they're like Agamemnon's. Because what made Abraham do what he did wasn't just some 
noble sense of duty or some, some great willingness to sacrifice his own desires or some slavish instinct of obedience. No, the reason that Abraham could bind Isaac and lay him on that altar and raise that knife is that over the years he had come to realize that God could be trusted. Which means that Abraham knew that whatever happened, Isaac would not finally be lost to him. Because he couldn't be. Because God had promised that Isaac would be the one through whom would come a great nation. Because Isaac was the son of promise. Now, some people have suggested that Abraham never really intended to kill Isaac, that, that somehow he knew that God would provide a lamb. And that's, that's why when Isaac asks him, as they're going up the mountain, that's why when Isaac asks him where the lamb for the sacrifice is, Abraham tells him God will provide. But I'm not so sure that's the case. In verse 10, when it says that Abraham reached out his hand, and took the knife to slaughter his son, I think that's telling the truth. I think Abraham really did intend to kill Isaac. And that's what makes his, his faith all the greater. Because if he knew, if he knew the whole time that God would provide a substitute, then he would need less reason to trust. But if he genuinely thought that he would have to go through with this awful act and that still somehow God would keep his word and Isaac would live, then Abraham had to believe something much greater. Then he had to not only trust God, but believe that God would somehow raise his son Isaac from the dead. And actually in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what we're told Abraham believed. Abraham considered that God was able, Hebrews says, even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Or, as one early Christian author, several hundred years later, would write, in two things was Abraham victorious, that he killed his son, although he did not kill him, and that he believed that after Isaac died, he would be raised up again and he would go back down with him. For Abraham was firmly convinced that he who said to him, through Isaac shall your descendants be named, was not lying. In Hannah Moore's poem, the married couple, Dan and Jane, they, they do at the end come to an agreement. As they discuss the example of Abraham, they realize that he was not simply a man of faith, nor merely an obedient follower who did what he was told. Instead, what Abraham embodied was the true nature of faith, a willingness to trust God, to trust God enough to act on that trust. As Dan puts it at the end of the poem, our doctrines are at last the same. They only differ in the name. The faith I fight for is the root. The works you value are the fruit. How shall you know my creed sincere unless in works my faith appear? How shall I know a tree's alive unless I see it bear and thrive? St. Paul was right. Abraham was a man whose relationship with God was based not on some great virtue of his own, but rather on simple trust in God's promise. But St. James was also right. 
Abraham's faith in God wasn't mere belief. It was a genuine trust, a trust upon which he was willing to act. Abraham showed the true nature of his creed when he took Isaac up on that mountain. He was willing to bind his son, the son whom he loved, and raise a knife to sacrifice him, all because of his unshakable confidence that the God whom he had come to know was good and that no matter what, that God would remain true to his promise. The question for you and me isn't, are we willing to make some heroic gesture of obedience like Abraham? The question for us is, do we really trust God? Do we trust him enough to believe his promises and to live as if those promises are true? Thank you.